God's hand is always at work. God is always at work. Whether we do something that looks like success or not. Welcome to the Essentially Translatable Podcast, brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. I'm Richard Esky. And I'm Emily Wilson. And today is a different kind of episode where I get to interview Reverend Dr. Richard Rudowski. All right. Junior. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you just completed your doctoral studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne. Congratulations. Thank you. Big accomplishment. So can you tell us a little bit about why you chose the program there? What was all involved in it? Sure. I'd been encouraged for a long time to consider doing doctoral work. And the thing that I really wrestled with is once you make a commitment to do doctoral work, you really want to do it about something that you actually love. And I didn't think I loved anything enough in the world (laughs) to do that. So it was quite a while. And I was interested in studying missiology, the study of mission, and I looked in several different programs. The Fort Wayne program had a very nicely structured missiology program with a lot of various course content that explored various facets of mission and then uh, exposed you to different resources and areas of thought. And I felt like for being in a full-time ministry role, if I was going to do doctoral work, I was going to need that kind of structure to get me started Mm -hmm. Um, because there are other types of programs that are completely based on whatever your interests are and you just get the time and space to explore and research and go where it all takes you. But that just wasn't really, didn't fit with me personally, no matter what I'm doing, but certainly uh, in a Mm -hmm. full-time ministry role, I needed some structure to get me launched out. So that was the main reason for um, that. And the networking possible with other church leaders. And I've had the privilege to work with different church leaders in this role, but to get to know them on a different level and to study with them and be colleagues in a Mm -hmm. doctoral program has been very rewarding as well. So what was your dissertation focus on? Like, so before I reveal the actual title, like what was your process in deciding what it was that you were going to actually research and write upon? Yeah, I wanted to think about how to effectively engage communities in Bible translation work. We talk a lot in mission world about partnership, and I just wanted to explore what the difference between saying that you're partnering with somebody but actually giving the tools and categories and space for authentic partnership and realizing that that that's not something that automatically happens Mm -hmm. was something I really wanted to look at. And I wanted to evaluate if the experience that I had had working as a missionary in Botswana where we tried to really value that idea if we were effective in creating a context for authentic partnership with the language community we worked with. Right. That Because it varies (laughs) on like what you're actually saying is authentic versus in practicality. Sure. Yeah. And I wouldn't want anybody to think that I'm saying, I don't think anybody ever intends to be in partnership and be inauthentic. It's just that there are blinders or barriers that prevent you from realizing you know, because I come from a position where I have the resources or I have the power or I'm used to calling the shots that it's not an even playing field. And when I get out there, I may be blind to those things and think I'm being in authentic partnership, but Mm -hmm. I'm not really creating the space for others to join me in that. Right. Yeah. So the, the process of exploring partnership and what does that look like? You landed on this fabulous title 
evaluating co-creative processes in planning the Shikalahari Bible Translation Project. Right. All right, break that down. Sure. What was it that, like, how did you land on co-creative processes? Yeah. Well, just to, to take one step back from that, in the PhD program, every time we would start an intensive class, the professor would ask us to introduce ourselves and then to talk about what it is that we were thinking of doing research on, which usually stumped a lot of my classmates. And I just actually blurted out that title um, <laughs> just because it, it was something that like co-creative I can explain in a second where I came from but that was like I would I just said evaluating co-creative processes and planning the Shikalahari Bible translation project which for everybody was like wow and also what does that even mean but <laughs> English, co please co-creative it actually took me a little while in the research I that was a word I had heard or a term I had heard, I remember discussing it with Rob and Ishni Vayat, who work with us here at LBT and who I worked with in Botswana. And I didn't remember the context, but I remember the term, you know, and I thought co-creative was a, a term that we used or that they used to talk about how you would partner with someone and start as much as possible from an even playing field. Now, when I was in Botswana to do my, my field research, uh, Kelsey Rolke actually reminded me, hey, that term comes from this book. And I was mm. like, yes, that is it. That's what I've been looking <laughs> for. So I, I checked that out. But co-creative, the original context for the word is from a book called Creating Local Arts Together. And the author there is talking about like you're working with a, a community and you might create music or art or some other thing. And what process would you go about so that you would investigate collaboratively what your values were and make something new together. He called that co-creative. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, you know, when we think about Bible translation, that's creating a work of art as well, in a sense. It's a literary work of art. Mm -hmm. And so that it had a lot of potential to be used as a as a thought process for how you would do that too. Much more complex and detailed mm -hmm. and in a sort of a different space. But that's where that's where I kind of co-opted the term from. So that's from Brian Schrag, by the way, in case he ever listens. <laughs> we'll give him credit. But yeah, so co-creative as opposed to collaborative mm -hmm. or coordinating. I wanted a word that would make you stop and have to think. Collaborative, you know, really if you take it apart, means to work together. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of work, a lot of collaborative work that happens, but it can still happen with those same blinders I talked about a minute ago of like, okay, you just sort of approach it like we already know the common task, so let's just figure out how we're going to do it. Co-creatives takes a step back and says, what is the task? What is the mm -hmm. common goal here? And mm -hmm. gives the space to evaluate that. Right. You give some background on just Bible translation principles, the history. Yeah. And I like how you were just actually hinting at it of that it is an art. And you mentioned in the dissertation how translation kind of moved from being an art into a science. Yeah. And can you walk us through a little bit? I know that there's a lot of detail within Bible translation history, yeah. but in the more broader sense what has that looked like through the generations and you know where are you leaning towards in this co-creative processes sure yeah translation when you go back into the roman era i guess and see some of the writings in latin that talk about translation one of the values they talk about is the creativity that can come with translation and that in general it's really to be valued that you you take the language from you know what's being expressed in one language and find a way to express it very naturally and clearly and so you you end up with a lot of freedom on how you move between what something might look like structure wise from one language to another 
And in fact, in that era, if somebody called somebody a faithful interpreter, that was not a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, faithful interpreter was sort of like a backhanded derogatory <laughs> thing, like you're just kind of slavishly following. You're not very nuanced. You don't really know what you're doing. Right. And that that type of interpretation was really only for like, if I've got a, a legal document and I'm going to translate it mm-hmm. between one and the other, I'm mm-hmm. going to do that. But it's not really artistic. So that's kind of how a translation was approached in the 20th century. If you think about like almost every aspect of life became affected by the scientific method and the idea that you can create a method and create a reproducible track of how you do things step by step by step and you'll get the same result and you can you can make conclusions based on that method. So linguistics and translation were not really exempt from that. And Eugene Nida is an author particularly that talked about the principles of translation and, in a sense, how if you do translation a certain way, if you do certain things, you're going to get a good translation. Mm-hmm. And so you had to try to keep it simple here. You, you One could conclude, although I don't think Nida himself intended this to be the conclusion, but one could conclude if I just do step A, B, C, D, and E, mm. then I'm going to get a good translation. Right. And then reality has borne itself out that... You can do step A, B, C, D, and E and have a translation and find that people still don't use it. And so over and over again, people wrestle with the idea of like, well, what's missing in the steps Mm -hmm. here? What's the one step we might be able to find if we just added step G (laughs) or F? I don't know where I was, but anyways, uh, (laughs) you know, then we would fix it. And so that that does kind of stem from an idea like there could be an answer. It's still based in the scientific method, if you will, that if we just had an answer here, maybe we need to to work on a certain oral method or maybe we need to do a certain thing. And if we did that here and it worked, then it probably works everywhere else too. And that's all based kind of in the scientific method. And in a sense, the Bible translation movement and Bible translation ministries have maybe not on purpose. I don't think if I said to somebody, is this how you think about it, that they would agree that they do. But I think, again, it's sort of just a blinders thing Mm -hmm. that we approach it in a sense as a sort of scientific thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So backing up a little bit into, I mean, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's New Testament yeah. and his translation. What kind of method would you have classified for him as as he approached translation into the German vernacular? Yeah, he definitely approached it as a, a sort of an art and what we might today call dynamic equivalence in a sense in that he really felt like it was important to make it sound as natural and German as possible in his writings about translation. He says that we don't ask questions of the Latin as other people when they're translating do. We go to the market and we listen to how the the mother in the market speaks to her kids and uh, you know how people speak in natural German. That's how this text is supposed to speak. So he was free then from trying to recreate the same sort of grammatical features mm-hmm. and and to say things like one of his um, controversial ones is you know we are saved by grace through faith alone. That text does not have alone in the original Greek right. language, but he he said, well, I'm adding it because a German would need to hear it, like you know, right. It would need yeah. to hear it for emphasis. And so that's, you know, that's controversial. I'm not sure, you know, we might feel differently about that. But the point is, he really looked at the receptor's experience, the hearer's experience as critically important as much as the what the text said in the source language as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then as it comes forward into this almost scientific method yeah. of which 
is to be lauded that they're trying to find, you know, what is formulaic about like Bible right. translation? How can we get God's word into people's language in an efficient, uh, expedited way? Yes. Right? Yep. However, culture is not always scientific. We have like this idea of alone, right? Like to be able to get that point across, Luther knew in his language, you know, this was an art. And that's just one little detail. And scripture is full of detail. And I think that as we're, you know, processing, okay, translation method and culture and expectations of the community, that it is very artful. And that's where you landed with this co-creative process. So can you break it down a little bit? You share in your dissertation, I think it's pronounced scopus theory. Yeah. And where that falls within, you know, going from art to then scientific method and into this kind of new kind of thing. So can you share a little bit about what does that look like? Sure. Yeah. Some of the scientific pieces, as you've mentioned, and some of the theory, there are good things that mm-hmm. can be drawn from that. And there, it's not like it's just a wide right. open blank slate across any culture or language. I just... In looking at the research in the long section of the dissertation that goes over different areas of research, I felt like the the method piece of translation has been covered quite a bit in terms of different methods and different approaches. But what hasn't been covered enough is just what are ways to approach the relational aspect. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of always assumed in the literature somehow that that will happen in one way or another, but it's not really a lot of guidance given there for how you might approach something as you think about working interculturally. And and that's what's really important. So the Scopus theory is a tool that's designed to ask of whomever a translated product, this could be secular translation as well, but to ask of the intended audience of a translated product, what are you expecting from this translation? You know, what, how will it be used? And so forth. And so the clients of the um, the translation have their opportunity to give their feedback to it. And so applied to Bible translation, then it's the same kind of thing to ask people like, how do you intend to use this? What are values that you have? Translation theory, as proposed by NIDA for Bible translation, really kind of defaulted to a simplified, very well explained text. Mm-hmm. But if you take the cultural aspect that you you mentioned into account that's a that's a very western especially united states value that clarity in communication is seen as paramount well if you start to look in other cultures you'll see for example that clarity and just simple communication can be seen as rudimentary or Mm -hmm. uh, unsophisticated right right and so then one might ask the question is this how the scripture should be communicated or what are other values that come into play there so scopus theory to put it more simply than I am, is is a way to stop and say, let's ask those questions of the text. And there's a certain order that it asks questions in. And the, the uh, last one is the source text and what it demands. It's not that that's, that is still accounted for, but it's there are other questions also of audience expectation and desire for the text that are to be understood and accounted for as you go about translation. So one of the aspects that I've heard as your position of director for program ministries and chief operating officer is this vision casting of, you know, we to this point have only really studied the lag measures. What happens after the Bible translation program has been completed? What are the effects that there's 
not necessarily this determining factor of success. Like this is this is a Bible translation that is going to be utilized by the community to be engaged with beforehand, before yeah. you know the the program is completed. And so you share in your dissertation that you have sought to develop an instrument. So I'm just going to read it. What you have had in this dissertation, I have sought to develop an instrument that can measure these and other factors as predictive lead measures of scripture usage by local language communities. The 12 factors measured are one, community ownership, two, translation process and progress, three, interim publication and use, four, local language literacy program, five, capacity building, six, local organization active involvement in decision-making activities about project resources, seven, local church and community group engagement in translation processes, eight, design marketing acceptance of translation materials, nine, translation brief content, 10, translation brief function, 11, consultancy clarity of role, 12, consultancy method. That's a lot. So can you break that down exactly? So there's a lot of factors that are involved in scripture usage. So this is part of the co-creative processes. How did you land on those? And how did you actually dive into the research uh, as you were measuring these? Okay. Yeah, I think the, a common factor for all of those 12 things are that there is the attempt to evaluate a relational component, what's happening relationally as work is being done in the project with the various stakeholders. And that was a piece that we felt was missing from the methodology that just says, well, if you technically do translation a certain way and follow certain principles, you're going to get a good translation. Mm -hmm. We were trying to predict based on research that was done after the fact, that lag measure you talked about where somebody says, well, this translation appears to have been well used because these things happened while Mm -hmm. translation was going on. We're trying to take that information and say, okay, if that's true, then how do we observe whether that's happening during the translation process and sort of assign value to that? Mm -hmm. And so the various uh, 12, which... I mean, I don't even remember them <laughs> without having them in front of me. We right. have an instrument that helps us do that. But the various 12, basically, you know, the the common denominator, again, would be something is going to score higher if, if the aspect uh, that's being looked at is being done better relationally than mm-hmm. than not. So like the one of them is a project brief. Mm. A project brief is a document that comes out of Scopus Theory, which says we've as the community and other stakeholders have agreed, this is what we're looking for, for a translation. And this is some guidance for the translators and things like that. Well, that's in our instrument to evaluate. Do we think that's having a positive impact on future usage? We would say if the community was substantially involved in the formation of what's in that document, Mm -hmm. that's going to score higher than if just the translation team and a few outsiders kind of work through that process and put it down. And that's going to be higher than if like just a couple expatriates at a desk put it all down and brought it to that would actually short circuit the whole creative process if you did it that way. So I think that's a a huge distinction is that, you know, it's not grading the project brief itself. It is grading like, okay, what is the community involvement? And like, how is this, like you said, relationally affected? And I think that 
that can be easily glossed over. Right. You know, it's like, oh yeah, this is a this is great. Like all of the, you know, the goals are listed or something. But if it doesn't have the buy-in from the community, is it truly a co-creative process? Right. So you focused in on a few centrally in your dissertation. You right. didn't tackle all 12, thankfully, because otherwise I would still be reading it right. today. Yes, I'd still be writing it. <laughs> so <laughs> when you went in to do your research, can you kind of break it down a little bit before we go into the co-creative processes and what you landed on? How did you set up your research and like the survey work that you did? All right. Yeah. With any dissertation, the thing you're always going to get guidance on is you have to limit, like you can't fully study any right. issue, right? Mm-hmm. So we chose a specific project, uh, language project, Shakalahari Bible Translation Project in Botswana, which I helped to start, which is, so if anybody would ever read the dissertation, you see that I have to have a whole <laughs> section of explaining that how I've tried to limit my own mm-hmm. knowledge, insider knowledge of the project and bias and stuff like that. But we chose that project and wanted to look at what kind of records did the project have about how it was started and, and the ways things were done and to evaluate whether those things have been effective. And in looking at the project's history, we landed on, or we, I don't know, I keep saying we because it's me, but anyways, I landed on three things to, to look at. There were plenty of other things we could look at, but three things, one of which was that there was a, a local advisory committee that was responsible for guiding the project and was empowered and believed they were empowered to to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's, and those 12 items you read, I mean, you talk about community ownership as a few different things there. So that would be, you know, an expression of what that could look like. So we wanted to see what, how that came to be and how that functioned and whether that made a difference. The second was the selection of the translators, how that happened. And again, really looking at the, the community's involvement in that process, but we still, in the dissertation, I still um, lay out what the process was, and one could read that and look at and look at the appendices and see there's a framework here that you could use, but you would also say the more important part is how have I engaged the community and what does it look like to do that? And the third one was a project brief, the formation of an agreement between the community and all of their stakeholders in the translation of what they expected and really unpacking that as what does it look like to do that because it's not as simple as it sounds you can look and sit there with a list of questions and somebody may know the answer but we found maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here but we found that you you got to create context for people to understand the questions you're going to ask when you start asking them Mm -hmm. their expectations about the bible uh, before they can really effectively answer them and that's part of the creative process the co-creative process is to slow down and recognize that and figure out a way to make space to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you actually, when you were in Botswana, you were there yep. for about two months, yep. right? Can you walk us through what did the, the survey questions look like? How did you gather people together to, to ask the questions? And what did you find just generally as you were, as you were researching, you know, like actually delving in like co-creative processes? How did you explain it? Yeah. For those who know different research methods, I'll try to keep it simple, but this is a case study. And so a case study has a lot of qualitative elements that you're trying to assign value to and then make assertions based on the information you get there. And it has the opportunity then to have several narrative elements that sort of can richly describe what people are saying. And it also opens up like 
the space to look at some what would be considered objective things like I had access to 13 years worth of project minutes, you know, and looking at how the project recorded its own formation and history and things like that. So mm-hmm. so I spent some of that time accessing that and sort of summarizing some of the, the flow of how the project formed and how that interacted with those three co-creative ideas we were talking about. And then the process of gathering people, this is in the post-COVID world, mm. although mm. It, it was it's not exactly post-COVID in mm. Botswana. At the time I was there, they had been under some lockdowns and those were just lifted mm. as I was arriving. And so people were still in the space of figuring out like how much they wanted to do public mm-hmm. things or not do sure. public things. Yeah, it was really interesting. The The Republic of Botswana was very gracious in granting a research permit for the work. And yeah, even in the midst of everything going on, they still gave a permit, which was a huge blessing. Mm -hmm. They required that for large group interviews that I would go to the chief of each village and get his or her permission Mm -hmm. to interview the people of the village. Mm -hmm. So that was a process in itself. Sure. Uh, And then after having worked through that, we found some some villages, well, okay, every village has a kotla, a central gathering space where people will come to, to talk about ideas and matters that are important to the community and share information. And uh, so in some villages, when we made contact that we would like to come, uh, people that were there made connections and, and had people come to the kotla and we could interview them. There are other places we just walked around and found who was out there and and interviewed them. So in general, everybody was positive about the Bible translation project. There's quite a bit of variance in terms of who had heard of or been exposed to the project and who had not. All of the respondents indicated that they were going to buy a Bible when it came out. So those are kind of at high levels. You know, it was a great reception that way. We had deeper and longer interviews with some of the pastors from the area, the people who formed the projects committee, mm-hmm. quite a bit there. And then there's uh, the two translators, Ponzo and Swarakhanang, had uh, quite a bit of interaction with them and all of the expats that had ever mm-hmm. worked on the project mm-hmm. as well. So so you mentioned about the Kotla and that community coming together yeah. has actually played out in all of the Shikalahari Bible Translation Program mm-hmm. and is part of what is the co-creative process. Can you talk about the importance of the Kotla to the program? Yeah, I have to say the Kotla provides within the culture a ready-made tool or place in which you can invite conversation, and that's a huge blessing. And I, I would say that for folks working intercultural, if you can find that, what does that in the community you're working in, that's mm-hmm. a huge win where you can get into that space. So for the Kotla was a, a fantastic mechanism to, even in the early days of the, the program, once we had a, a core group of local leadership that really bought into the project and wanted to gain momentum in the area, their solution was to go to every kotla. (laughs) You go to every kotla, they speak, and uh, yeah, then I knew enough Shikalahari that I could also speak some and impress all the people that this (laughs) outsider could also speak. And uh, it really created the context where the community could be engaged and give their thoughts, hear what we in the group wanted to do and to react to that and to guide. So it just really created a, a space for that already to happen and uh, to take that to a different level when we needed to go into some deeper things. So, mm. 
So I have known you for almost eight years and it was really cool watching, you know, almost like in my mind's eye, this all unfolding of, you know, as you're reflecting back on your experience, but also delivering this information, you know, without bias (laughs) of what has worked well and what hasn't worked well. And just ultimately that how God is glorified throughout this process, even where one could uh, look at it and say, hey, that didn't work. And this is where we have corrected. Can you share a a little bit about your journey as you were just reflecting on this as someone who has been invested in this community, you're still invested in this community, and your desire for God's word to be in their own language? What was it like reflecting on it from your own personal experience, but also then hearing from them about what what looks like success in a Bible translation program. Yeah, it, just a really a great blessing. The whole process of working on the dissertation and being able to go back to Botswana and be with people there was such a gift. And and to reflect on the specifics of how things worked, it really just as you mentioned already, I can't help but just say it's definitely God's hand is at play and and God's hand is always at work. God is always at work whether we do something that looks like success or not, right? Uh, in this case, I just am very thankful for um, guidance I had before I uh, and my family ever went to live in Botswana. Folks that had recently completed their doctoral work saying, "You know, we really like you to understand some of some new ideas," and just to plant the idea in my mind that it'd be interesting to see what it would be look like to try to work with these ideas from the beginning. And then to just see how God had worked, to see where course had changed, and to really land recognizing that you can always learn something, but there's no, the the real short answer is that there's no cookie cutter approach to anything when you're working interculturally. There are some values, like how do I find the space to understand where people discuss important ideas and make decisions? How do I find the space to say, I'm going to ask you a question that is complicated, and so... I'm going to do a lot of work to prepare things that help me ask that question in an effective way, like the whole what translation style do you want to do. Required multiple translations of Bible text, required folks who spoke the language more fluently to really grasp the idea and to communicate to everybody else, like here's why we're asking the question. Yeah, usually folks, when they're thinking translation, would think like, yes, it's either a good translation or a bad translation. So to open the category like, all these are good translations. Mm. Which one do you prefer? And to prefer a different translation in the Bible is not wrong. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff. So just really gratifying. And in all those pieces, every step along the way, there were lots of other people working really hard to pull that together too. And yeah, it, their their work was was really great and I appreciate them. And I guess in a way, wish they could have kind of walked the journey with me, mm. maybe in a sense looking at the dissertation, they can to a degree, but it was really gratifying to see how God worked through just sort of trying to find your way and the the end result really being that you have to try to understand and be willing to work with people. You're not going to find a method that you can just say, I'm going to pick this up and do it over here and it's going to work. So as I was reading through the dissertation, uh, I stumbled across this really beautiful quote from Ponzo Mosueo. And I'm just going to read it in its entirety and uh, just want to hear your reflection on it because it was probably really gratifying uh, to hear. At the end of the day, we know that we are part of this work for others. 
it has to benefit others. It's not just my work. It is for the community. It's for the people. It's for everyone. Not just our people, but for all of Botswana. For all people around the world who may be interested in how we wrote our language and did this work. Any fights or disagreements should not break you as a person. We should stick together and work together because it is not for us. It's for everyone. Yeah, it's a beautiful statement. And and it's a gift to have worked with the two translators on this project who are both this committed. And that's not an automatic thing that happens in projects. So, yeah, on one hand... Yeah, you know, we don't believe in luck as Christians, right? But I'm pretty lucky that I got to work in this project that had so many things go well. And the selection of translators and these two being the result of that process. Yeah, I certainly would recommend, like, it is the most important thing for folks who are going to work in translation to do the hard work and slow work of trying to assess how you're going to find these folks. And this is because the community was involved and knew the candidates and could speak into their quality and veracity and be responsible for their their personal lives and correcting things like that. And so that's the result of something like that is this this really committed, young, beautiful Christian woman who's just expressing there's something bigger that I'm involved in here. That's mm-hmm. anytime you work in mission, that's what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want that for yourself. You want that for anybody that's working in mission is to realize um, I'm at work for something bigger than myself. And because of that, I can go through a lot and, you know, recognize it's not all roses and everything, but but I can do it because it's for something bigger. Right. I I was just really struck by that she, and just as I've, I've been part of Bible translation ministry, you know, in the office setting, but like that there are all kinds of obstacles that can right. tear us apart, but ultimately that God is being glorified as we come together, as we work alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ that, you know, this co-creative process is glorifying to him hmm. that the Shikalahari language being translated, it, the, the words of scripture being translated into the Shikalahari language, that ultimately others are going to be, you know, turning to him and being encouraged by the the program and that idea of like you know it it almost reminded me of like in acts you know of like in you know in jerusalem and judea and samaria like you know it's just like it keep keeps amplifying out of you know this isn't just for her this Mm -hmm. isn't just for you know her community or just for the shikalahari language community this is for botswana this is for the whole world to be encouraged in the church that we all have something uh to learn from one another i love you know this idea of different facets that we we see of scripture as uh, different language communities have it translated into their own language so anyway i'm just i'm a little jealous that yeah. you've <laughs> had the opportunity to to talk with her directly i wasn't part of that interview earlier this year when we released with swarahanan and uh, ponso two different episodes but definitely i i was blessed hearing them and their reflections so if you were to hope for one thing as people read your dissertation in the bible translation world, our circuit, if you will, or just missiology in general, what would you hope for as people read through your research and apply? What, what would be your dream? 
Yeah, that we'd come to recognize that any work done in mission is is trying to remove a barrier to the gospel that we have inadvertently or that just exists to people understanding the gospel. And so that people would slow down and say, how can we do this? What's the relational thing that we need to do here? And not abandon good method and tools and all these things, like to use them all in service to God's mission, but to recognize that I have some principles I can work from here, but ultimately it's about working with people and it's taking the tools and they're always going to be in service to the people and just finding the the space to remove the blinders to say, what's it really look like to do that here? What's it look like to give the space and time to do that here and to, to really just do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for breaking down uh, the barriers for this dissertation. <laughs> he, <laughs> he pointed out which chapters to focus in on and how to make it easier and had, has been talking to me for, I don't know, a year or something on like, what does this look like? So I already had that in my brain, but we wanted to share it all with you guys of um, just this exciting work of being able to see how God is working through co-creative processes in the Bible translation movement. So thank you, Reverend Dr. Rich Rudowski, for being able to share your work. Thank you very much. It was great to talk about it some. And for the listeners, now I'll get back in host mode for a second here. For the listeners, if you would like to see this dissertation, you can write an email to us at info at lbt.org. We'd be glad to send it out to you. And yeah, for both of you who might want that, no. <laughs> We'd love to share it with you. Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. Look for past episodes at lbt.org slash podcast or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow Lutheran Bible Translator's social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or go to lbt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's Word in their hands. The Essentially Translatable podcast was produced and edited by Andrew Olson. Our executive producer is Emily Wilson. Podcast artwork was created by Caleb Rodewald and Sarah Lyons. Music written and performed by Rob Veit. I'm Mitch Rodowski. So long for now.